Our show sponsors and your donations make Adventure Rider Radio possible. And without the sponsors, we just couldn't do it. So if you're looking for something for your bike, consider shopping the companies that help bring Adventure Rider Radio to you every week for free. Thanks. Well, if you're wondering what the deal is with sidecars, you ever walk by them looking and think, okay, well, they're kind of neat, but what's the deal? I mean, do we ride them when we can't ride motorcycles anymore? Is it just for people that are too old to ride a bike or, or maybe you can't, you don't have your balance anymore? What's the deal? Well, you might be surprised with today's episode and what we uncover about motorcycles and sidecars. We're going to talk to a couple of different people about it. We also have Brett Tax with the Rider Skills talking about riding gravel. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Sam Manicum, Nick Sanders, Terry Borden, Sandy Borden, Jack Borden, Graham Field, Dustin Vince, Jason Spafford, Lisa Murray, David Peterson, Rachel, Ed March, Glenn Hickstead, Dr. Gregory W. Fraser, Dave Barr, Michelle Lanfear, Tiffany Coates, Herbert Schwartz, Red Tat, Zoe Cano, Nathan Millward, Glenn Hoskins, Joe Rowe, Jeremy Creaker, Simon Thomas, Lisa Thomas, Simon Pavey, Grant Johnson, Robert Wick, Seth Simon, Elizabeth Martin. Hey, I'm Carol DeBell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll fill your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. remember the first Ural sidecar I saw in person. They pulled in at the parking lot and I watched it pull in and I spotted it. It was a Ural and it was the first one I'd seen. I've seen them in magazines before that, but not in person. I watched it go over to the far side of the parking lot and park and the guy got off the bike and I thought, I'm going to go over and ask him about this. And, and probably in my mind, I'm thinking he's going to be happy when I do because I'm showing interest in his sidecar and it's just a, it's a Ural sidecar. By the time I got there, there was two or three other people standing there already asking him questions. I thought, that's interesting. It turns out that sidecar owners report this all over the place. They say that everywhere they go, they're like a magnet. People walk up and they want to know about the sidecar. And the interesting thing is, sidecar ownership is on the way up. It's on the rise now. So if you don't buy a Ural, you pretty much have to convert a motorcycle into a sidecar unit. And how do you do that? What's involved with it? 
Well, we decided to tackle that today. And to do it, what we did is we contacted DMC Sidecars. DMC Sidecars has been making motorcycle sidecars for many years, and they've got a lot of models, 17, 18 different models on their website that you can buy for your motorcycle. Jay Geezy is the owner of DMC Sidecars. My name is Jay Giese. I'm CEO of DMC Sidecars. Jay, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. So just before we get started here, what is DMC Sidecars? What do you do there? Yeah, we actually are a manufacturer of sidecars. We build 17 different models of sidecars from scratch at our uh, factory here in Enumclaw, Washington. How long has DMC been doing it for? Uh, This is our... We're about to start our 19th year. So you've certainly seen a lot of bikes, which is why we wanted to get some information on you. So from you rather uh, about about doing a a sidecar setup on your bike. So if you have a motorcycle and you want to get a sidecar, what's one of the first things we have to be concerning ourselves with? Is it the bike itself? Well, not so much. What's most important, well, a couple of things that are really important. First, that the bike and the sidecar be properly sized for each other. You want to make sure that if you've got a big bike, you've got a strong, heavy sidecar on it. If you've got a real little bike, well, you probably don't want a huge, heavy sidecar on it. The other thing that's important is, unfortunately, there is absolutely no regulations in our industry. And as such, there's a lot of real low-end manufacturers, really pretty most of them, with one exception, are importing these from overseas, Czech Republic or India. And they include what they call universal mounts. And they tell you, yes, this fits everything universally. Well, the important thing is, no, universal in general means it fits nothing universally. So it's important that whatever bike you go with is either going to have a custom installation done on it by a competent shop, or you pick a bike that a shop such as ours makes proper bike-specific mounts for that bike. So it ends up not being something you've just cobbled together. I guess the thing is with the sidecar is it's not just something you're hanging off the side of the bike. You're completely changing the handling of the bike so it becomes part of the frame. Yeah, it's done right, certainly. Uh, It is possible to build a sidecar bike that you can take the sidecar on and off of, in which case you wouldn't make upgrades to the bike to make it a better sidecar bike. But realistically, in the almost 19 years we've been doing this, I've only had one customer who said he was going to take the sidecar on and off regularly who actually did. Um, Ideally, you want to make the bike a dedicated sidecar bike. And to do that, there are changes you may want to make to the bike. For instance, all bikes, and it doesn't matter what brand it is, be it a Harley, BMW, Indian, whatever, all bikes, when you convert them to three wheels, again, be it a sidecar or a trike, you're going to end up with heavy steering. The reason being is the steering was originally optimized to be a good two-wheel motorcycle. And as such, it has a lot of trail on the front end. Trail's like caster to a car. With a lot of trail, every time you move the handlebars, you're swinging the front end through a fairly large arc. We want that to be a small arc because when you're turning through a large arc, you actually are dragging the sidecar sideways. 
So to reduce trail, the front wheel needs to move forward by about two inches. Once you've done that, yeah, you could still ride the bike in an emergency, but you're not going to like the way it rides without that sidecar. The reason being, with not a lot of trail on the front end, it rides like an old 1960s chopper. Yes, it's possible to ride, but is it enjoy to ride? Not so much. Right. So, well, what about the the tire size? Because I, I do notice that some setups you see people with a sidecar, they've got the, a narrower tire, and some of them have really wide, fat tires. Well, tires, it depends on if we're dealing with the front or the rear. We'll start with the front tire. A lot of sidecar bikes you'll see, mainly from Europe and in pictures of sidecars from Europe, have a big, fat tire on the front, which looks really neat and doesn't really work so good in the US. It's great if you're just going short jaunts from town to town, you know, when you're on the bike for 15-20 minutes, but if you got to cross Kansas, it's horrible. The big fat tire tends to track every last groove in the road, so it's really twitchy. And then if it rains, you've got all that big tire on the front, it hydroplanes really easily. In general, a motorcycle tire works much better on the front. Now on the back, whenever possible, we like to put an automotive tire on the back of the bike. The reason being is if you ever look at a sidecar rig, you'll notice that the sidecar wheel is slightly ahead of the rear wheel of the bike. This is what we call wheel lead. With the sidecar wheel slightly ahead of the bike, every time you turn, you're actually scuffing the tires. You have to put the sidecar wheel slightly ahead of the back wheel of the bike because if you put it in line with the bike, it would steer as easy as possible, but it would be like the on your car if you just remove the right front wheel of the car. It would want to fall over. Mm-hmm. So we move the sidecar wheel forward a bit um, up to about, well, we, we end up in the 10 to 15% of the wheelbase of the bike far forward. But because of that, every time you turn, you're scuffing the rear tire. So if you can put an automotive tire on the back of the bike, you end up with a tire that is significantly uh, cheaper, lasts significantly longer on the order of 30 to 40,000 miles rather than five to 10,000 miles, has a better ride quality because it runs at a lower pressure and has a higher load carrying capacity. So in almost all circumstances, if you can get an automotive tire on the back of the bike, it's really a great thing to do. And that's another reason why you probably wouldn't want to be popping the sidecar off and then riding it because the automotive tire is not going to be great for riding as a motorcycle. I absolutely thoroughly agree with that. Unfortunately, there's a whole community out there. They call themselves the dark side and have a website devoted to them of people that put automotive tires on the back of their two-wheel motorcycles to save money. And yeah, I've heard Myself, that. I think that's a little foolish. You know, you spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 on a decent bike that the factory did everything they could to make it a great handling bike, and then you're too cheap to put the tire on it was designed for. Just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, that seems strange to me because part of the reasons that motorcycle tires wear out is the compound is softer, the, you know, gripping the road better than an automotive tire would, you would think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a strange one. Well, well, hang on. So go back to the steering for a second. So 
the rear tire, okay. you're saying if we could put a, a, an automotive tire on, otherwise you could just run the, the stock, uh, whatever stock tire comes on your bike. So as far as the steering goes, that front end, you, you said that that needs to be extended a couple of inches. What do you do? Well, it depends on the bike and what the customer's needs are. Traditionally, we would go with a leading link front end. BMW used to call it an Earl's fork. But traditionally, up till maybe 20 years ago, fork tubes were fairly small diameters and tended to flex a lot. And so the leading link was give you a much stiffer front end and at the same time reduce the trail on the front end. We still do that for some bikes, like the Kawasaki KLR650 is one that comes to mind because it has fairly small fork tubes. If you go to more modern bikes, the trend has been to go bigger and bigger on the fork tube diameter, and as such, they don't flex as much. So a lot of times, we'll do triple trees that change the angle of the forks, kicking the front wheel forward. That accomplishes the same thing, and is almost as good as the leading link while maintaining a stock look to the bike and costing a whole lot less money. Other bikes, like the BMW Telelever bikes, will make a new from billet ball joint mount for the uh, bottom of the telelever front end uh, but uh, you know it all depends on what's best for the customer's individual situation there is no one right answer that fits every situation but if you are going to put a sidecar on your motorcycle then you do have to do something with your steering is that absolutely mandatory no you absolutely don't have to oh, okay um and a lot of people choose not to because a lot of times it can be very expensive and it also depends on the bike and, and who you are. For instance, you know, some NFL linebacker type person probably isn't going to need steering modifications as much as, you know, somebody who weighs in at like 100 pounds. Uh, the need really depends on how much upper body strength and upper body mass you have. In general, it's always preferable to modify the steering, but like pretty much everything with a sidecar, Everything is a compromise, and you've got to figure out the best compromise for your particular situation. And sometimes that means not spending the money on steering modifications because you may not have the money, or you're on a tight budget and it's something that can always be done later. One slight advantage to doing it later is it certainly makes you appreciate why you did it, having ridden mm. for a while without Right. And, and that's always worthwhile when you're spending money on something for sure to be able to say, I, I can feel it immediately. That's the problem, though. It's just, it's just heavy steering. And so you ride it. And if you don't like the heavy steering, then you go for the, the maybe the triple tree. Yeah, if uh, if you're on a budget, if you're not on a tight budget, I always recommend doing the, the steering modifications. You will never regret having easier steering. What other sort of mods do we have to do? I'm assuming that this clamps on, but, but are there other mods that we have to consider? Well, actually, very few sidecars just clamp on anymore, except for the, the lower-end sidecars that come with universal mounts. And if you look on more modern motorcycles, the trend has been more and more to get away from a round steel tube frame. And without a round steel tube frame, there really is no place to simply clamp a sidecar onto. So you end up having to make more and more intricate bracketry to get good solid mounting points that are spread fairly far apart. When you spread the mounts fairly far apart, you end up with a lot stronger setup than if the mounts are closer together. So for instance, bikes like one real popular one we do all the time are 
like the Suzuki V-Stroms or the Yamaha Super Tenere's. If you look at that bike, they have absolutely no lower frame. And so we end up essentially building a lower frame that bolts to engine mounts and foot peg mounts, and, and we've, we're adding a frame. So for the most part, we seldom just simply clamp a sidecar on. Do they need to be wired? Are you supposed to have extra lights in the sidecar? Are there any other requirements? Well, actually, there are absolutely no requirements for lighting on the sidecar unless the sidecar blocks the view of the original lights on the bike. We always like to add lights. My feeling is that anything that makes it easier to see you is a good thing. Sure. And so legally, you don't have to have lights. And on rare occasions... We don't put lights on, but they're, they're few and far between. For instance, we just recently did a real trick Ducati Scrambler, and that bike was far more about getting the right bobber look to it than anything else. It's going to be a sunny day bike, so it has no lights on the sidecar because it would have detracted from the looks. But for the vast majority of the bikes out there, we try to add front and rear turn signals, brake light, tail lights, often driving lights. Um, yeah, anything to help people see you. What about two-wheel drive? Do you offer two-wheel drive? We offer two-wheel drive, but two-wheel drive realistically gets you three things. It gets you awesome bragging rights. <laughs> it gets you a significantly lighter wallet and stuck about 50 feet further along than you would have been without it. Usually we're asked about two-wheel drive because the Ural motorcycles offer two-wheel drive. And Ural is currently the only bike you can buy from the factory with a sidecar. Well, the Ural is basically a 1930s design, which means it's overweight, horrible suspension, underpowered, and on way too skinny of tires by modern standards. And two-wheel drive is marginally useful on those. I was running an enduro several years ago, and at the end of the event, all the sidecars got together. And one after another, the sidecars were talking about this real horrible place on the uh, the event where the Euro riders had to go into two-wheel drive. After the third person, I finally realized just where they were talking about. So when it came my turn, I was on a BMW GS with one of our sidecars. I simply said, more throttle. It was so much of a non-issue on the BMW with adequate power, good suspension, proper-sized tires, that I didn't even realize it was a problem. Whereas on the bikes with the two-wheel drive, the Urals, they needed it just because the nature of their bike. Right. And, and, the, and of course, the Ural doesn't have even close to the horsepower. I forget what a Ural is now. I think it's, it's quite low. I don't even want to quote anything or, or say anything because I know it's very low. And don't get me, I'm not knocking Urals. A Ural is a great bike if you understand what it is and is not. If what you're looking for is a brand new antique and you don't mind tinkering with it and you're planning on doing secondary roads, it's going to put a great big smile on your face. But if you want something that you're going to hop on, dump gas in it right across the country on the highway, you're going to find it to be the most miserable piece of junk you've ever owned. It, it's all about your attitude. And the Euro is a great bike if you understand what it is. So you mean to say for, for bikes... I can bring just about any bike to you and, and you're just going to match a sidecar up to it and get it on? Like, I mean, what, could you do it with a 250? We have done 250s for training sites mainly. And I usually try to 
talk people with the 250s into moving to a bigger bike for a couple of reasons. One, a bigger bike has a much more robust frame and is actually an easier bike to mount to. But far more importantly, a bigger bike has bigger brakes. And yes, we can do 250s. Uh, we've done several TW200s, for instance. But usually I try to convince people that if we can move up to like a 650, I think you'll be much happier with the end result. And you're going to spend probably slightly less money doing the bigger bike. I noticed that you had an Enduro and you also had an Expedition. Um, are, what's the Enduro for? Oh, the Enduro's more an off-road sidecar. It's set up so that uh, if you start to get stuck, your passenger can get off and push and then just step on the back of it and step over the seat and, and set back down, and you don't even have to stop to pick them up. It also gives the passenger a lot more ability to be more active in the ride, which can be important if you're doing really aggressive off-road riding because it has handholds all over it, so your passenger can be moving anywhere they need to be. For instance, uh, my wife and I do a lot of riding on enduro-type events again, and she knows where she needs to be to keep us moving. For instance, if we're doing an uphill and loose terrain, which is probably the worst thing to do in a sidecar because they really suck on hill climbs and loose terrain, she'll actually be laying on the back of my seat behind me, uh, putting as much of her weight as possible over the rear tire. Uh, other situations, she might be hanging off to the other side. Uh, it just The enduro just gives you a lot more room to move around and is a better pure off-road sidecar, whereas the Enduro, or excuse me, the Expedition, if I was getting ready to load up and do a round-the-world tour, it would be my first choice of sidecars. It's a comfortable, long-distance sidecar capable of both on- and off-pavement riding with lots of room to store your gear. So what what's different about the Expedition over, say, the Classic, other than the, the looks of it? Uh, the Expedition we have on a completely different chassis that allows us a lot of different upgrades. For instance, we offer what we call electric trim on the Expedition in several of our medium to higher price sidecars, and we don't offer it on the Classic. What electric trim does is at the touch of a switch while riding, it raises or lowers the sidecar suspension, which in turn leans the bike. So, for instance, if we've got this set up to go straight down the road without pulling one way or the other, you put a passenger in the sidecar, their weight's going to compress the sidecar suspension some, which is going to cause the bike to pull to the right some. So what we do is, with the electric trim, you just hit a switch and you pick it back up. Or these bikes aren't aerodynamically symmetrical any longer, so at 40 miles an hour, if it's not pulling, it's going to pull at 80. So... The Expedition, we can put the electric trim on. The Classic, because we tried to build it for a different price point, that's not a possibility on its chassis. Also, the Expedition, we're set up to be able to put winches and you know, just all kinds of different things on it. It's a, just a, it's a far more uh, complex, more versatile chassis than the, the relatively simple chassis we put under the, the Classic. Are there any other considerations that someone should be looking at or, or, or looking into if they're considering a sidecar? Well, first of all, we touched basic, briefly on a bike. The most important bike to go with is the one that stirs your passions. Because, you know, there are some people that if it's not a Harley, they're not going to ride it. If it's not a BMW, they're not going to ride it. 
just because something makes good sense from a purely engineering or financial point of view doesn't mean it's the right thing to do for you because after all, at the end of the day, this is a toy and it needs to steer your passions. Uh, it's got to be fun. And that was Jay Giese from DMC Sidecars in Enumclaw, Washington. And you can find out more at their website, www.dmcsidecars.com. David Huff is the author of Proficient Motorcycling, a best-selling motorcycle book on riding skills. He's been a contributor to several magazines and many articles throughout the years. He's been recognized by the Motorcycle Safety Foundation for his contribution to the industry, and he was inducted into the AMA Motorcycle Hall of Fame in 2009 for his work producing books on safe riding, like Proficient Motorcycling. As well, David designed the course and wrote the book on sidecar training, which is now the manual for the sidecar safety program in the U.S. David Hoff is an author and journalist. He is the author of the Driving a Sidecar Outfit, which is the official training manual for uh, the sidecar safety program in the U.S. David, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks. Glad to be here again. Oh, great to get you back on. And, and of course, sidecars is the name of the game today. And we don't want to go into, of course, and we couldn't, all the details of riding with a sidecar. But I think it's, there's a lot of mystery here. I mean, there certainly is in my head when I look at a sidecar, because I've never ridden one before. And I think of, you know, what's this going to, what's this going to handle like? What sort of things do I have to consider? And we just spoke with Jay from DMC Sidecars about the technical considerations for sidecars and if you were going to get one about what you need to think about for a bike and then the sidecar and the hookup. But for those considering the possibilities of of mounting a sidecar to their motorcycle, what sort of top considerations do you have or and and how will it change the bike and its handling? Well, the the first thing is that it's not a bike anymore. In other words, when you add a third wheel out there with a rigid uh, sidecar outfit, meaning that it's bolted together so that things don't lean, um, it's going to handle quite a bit differently. So it's going to, uh, for a dedicated biker who has learned how to countersteer to cause a, a bike to roll, if he tries that on a sidecar outfit, it goes the wrong way. Or to put this in perspective, um, sidecars steer the way God intended things to go and bikes steer backwards. <laughs> so <laughs> right off, if you if you haven't really figured out how you control a bike, you know, you just kind of do it. And then you get on a sidecar outfit. Uh, it probably is not going to do what you think it's going to do. So starting with steering, if you want to make a, a bike go to the right, you push on the right grip. If you want to make a sidecar outfit go to the right, you pull on the right grip. And so if you just try and do this by uh, by grunt and feel, you know, the sidecar outfit may may seem to you that it's just not responding to what you want. Now, on the other hand, um, sidecars turn out to be really a lot of fun. And this is what a lot of people miss is they, they think, well, I've been riding a bike for 40 years. And when I get so old that I can't handle the bike anymore, then I'll get a sidecar outfit, which kind of misses the point that uh, sidecars are enjoyable enough that you really need to learn how to drive them when you're still healthy. And uh, a, a chief example of this would be uh, Coach Stroud, Ramey Stroud from Lyons, Oregon. Uh, he's a uh, he's an adventure travel uh, motorcyclist who um, uh, was also a competitor, and he had a nasty crash in a stadium competition. Uh, he was doing motocross and had decided that that the way he was going to pass the guy ahead of him is he would do three jumps in one. 
<laughs> so, so he, he read the thing up and launched it off of the jump and went clear up in the ceiling. Well, unfortunately, somebody had left a, a speaker wire or something dangling up there in the way up in the rafters. And it caught him and pulled him off the bike and uh, did some severe damage to his spine. A doctor said he'd never walk again and so forth. Well, he wasn't about to give up motorcycling. He'd been riding motorcycles forever. And so at that point, he had to get a sidecar outfit if he wanted to continue. And he said, you know, if I would realized how much fun they were, I would have gone to sidecars way back when. You know, even if I were able to get my, my legs working again, I would still have a sidecar outfit in the stable. And I think a lot of people kind of cheat themselves in thinking, well, it's got to be either two wheels or three wheels or four wheels, but it, you can't have them all at once. And, and what I tell people is you have my permission to own a bike, a trike, a boat, an airplane, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever you'd like. Uh, and you can have them all at once if you're wealthy enough and got a big enough garage or hangar or whatever. But uh, I will do things on a uh, on a sidecar outfit that uh, I don't have the chutzpah to do on a bike. Um, and I think uh, that enters a whole other vein of conversation, which is, well, what about the danger? Are sidecar outfits dangerous? And there are some people who, let's say that uh, you've been riding a bike for a long time and you may or may not be aware of the relative danger of bikes, but you're thinking, well, this other thing is not a bike. And so it's got to be more dangerous than what I'm doing. And actually the reverse is true. Um, the, the test of this is take your bike and get off it and stand alongside and then let go and see what happens, you know, and it'll fall over. With a sidecar out there, you just step off. It doesn't do anything. It just sits there, you know. And so right away, there's a clue that this thing has some stability that may be good for something. Well, and, hang on. Uh, before, before we get too far to that, I, I have to go back to I'm really glad you said about the fun aspect because, you know, that's exactly, I think, what a lot of people will picture a sidecar as is, is um, I know it's a trade-off. But I think, I think for at least for me anyway, I always thought that it was sort of like almost like a step down, you know, like you're, you're stepping away from the real bike thing and you're doing the sidecar. It's neat in its own right, but you're giving up way more than you're gaining. But it doesn't sound quite like that. No, well, this is the, this is the interesting conundrum. Uh, uh, I think that if you were to take a sidecar outfit, and I've done this, you know, uh, take it down to the Walmart and park out front or whatever, and you just listen to what people have to say about it the general public will come up and greet it with some enthusiasm. You know, it's got some, there's something going on there. They're not quite sure what it is, but it reminds them of an old German World War II movie or something. It's got some romance to it. Then a, a, a dyed-in-the-wool biker comes up and won't even look at you, you know, be, because he's convinced that this is not something he wants to have to do. Now, you sold out. You know, yeah, you've sold out to something. You know, and you, and I look at them and I think, boy, they're missing a lot. You know, they don't understand what they're missing. It's sort of like a biker seeing somebody who, uh, you know, a normal citizen who doesn't ride motorcycles and who looks at uh, his bike, whatever it is, and, and doesn't want to look at him or talk to him. And he thinks, well, th this guy is really missing out on a lot if he just knew how much fun bikes were. Well, it's the same thing with, with sidecar rigs. And uh, uh, it, it's not that. Sidecar rigs are going to compete with bikes one-on-one, -on -one, um, although they will go a lot more rapidly around corners, say, than some people think. But that's not really the issue. 
so what's what's the most fun thing about a bike? Is it going fast in a straight line? Well, no, it's cornering. And so everything then that's judged against bikes are judged by its ability to corner. So I'm reading this article just yesterday by some guy who is uh, – he's a magazine editor, uh, not a three-wheel type person. But he's doing a review of the Can-Am Spider. And he says, well, it should corner really fast, but it doesn't. He says, because if you try and go faster on a corner, the inside wheel will lift and then the engine shuts the power off and that's no fun. And I'm thinking, you dumbass, you know, the way that you drive a three wheel around a corner is you hang your butt way off to the inside to keep the, the inside wheel down. And then you can go fast, you know. So <laughs> uh, when we're talking about the enjoyment, part of it, uh, with enjoyment of a three wheeler, and that can be a sidecar outfit or a trike, part of the enjoyment is learning how to drive the darn things. You well, know, run through some of the things that make it great. Well, for one thing, um, let's imagine me cruising down a, a gravel forest service road, right? Lots of loose gravel and, and on a big adventure touring bike, GS or something, I'm not going to go very fast because a little bit of slip and slide, the next thing you know, uh, you know, you're kissing the ground. With a sidecar outfit, I'm hanging off, I'm on the throttle, I'm in a three-wheel drift doing 70 miles an hour and going, yee-hoo, you know, and having, a, and having a good time. And because um, I'm in much better control of the situation, uh, if I suddenly lose traction or gain a little traction, I can control that. I don't fall down just because the, the front wheel drifts out a little bit. So, uh, so just... If somebody wants to really have uh, fun uh, riding aggressively, driving a, a sidecar outfit aggressively, you can do that with with relative uh, uh, lack of danger. I mean, you can crash anything if you really work hard enough about it. But but uh, I, I I've enjoyed sidecars for years and years and years, and that includes you know off road stuff. That includes you know long distance travel. And um, that's one of the things about adventure travel that some people tend to miss is that you can load up a huge amount of gear on a sidecar outfit. And I kind of like sidecar outfits for that sort of thing better than a trike for a very important reason, and that's that a sidecar outfit has two tracks. A trike has three tracks, which means that if you're going down a road, a gravel road, you're going to have to put one of your three wheels in the middle of the road somewhere. With a sidecar outfit, you can put your traction wheel right where you want it and wherever the best traction is on the road and, and still not fall over. So, uh, so th there's a lot to be learned, and some of us consider that to be a big part of the deal. You know, if you're, if you're bored with bikes, <laughs> a sidecar outfit will give you a new lease on, uh, on, on, your life, on your life. Or maybe you have other reasons as well, which, you know, I've got a couple of dogs and I'm thinking that that's what we've been talking about a sidecar for is to put these dogs in and Excellent. be able to go off on an adventure. And that way we can actually truly go off. We don't have to worry about having our dogs looked after by anybody and right. our dogs love to go anyway. So I was back at a, at a sidecar rally in Menominee, Wisconsin. And on the Sunday morning when we packed up to leave, I, I cruised up to the nearest restaurant and sitting out in front of the restaurant was a beautiful uh, it was at the time, this is quite a few years ago, but it was a BMW slash two, you know, with the Earl's fork and a beautiful Steib sidecar, all black and the aluminum polished. And, and this is a very valuable piece of equipment, right? And the, as you know about slash twos, you just leave the ignition key in the ignition because it's not really a key. 
So here was this thing sitting there out in front of the restaurant with the key in the ignition. However, the best security device I've ever seen is there was a German shepherd laying on the ground behind his sidecar rig, looking at you saying, go ahead, make my day. <laughs> you mentioned at the outset here about countersteering. You know, there's a lot of people who ride bikes who don't understand countersteering, haven't bothered to, to think about it. And I don't know if that's a, a real big deal, but it certainly could be here because you said if, if you don't really know what you're doing with your bike to corner and then you get on the sidecar, that could be a real problem. That's when you're sort of actually forced to understand countersteering, aren't you? Yeah, you don't really need to understand countersteering as long as nothing goes wrong. So, you know, you're riding your motorcycle and it's a bike and you go through a tunnel and as you exit the tunnel, you hit a 40-knot crosswind. And if you don't understand how to countersteer to get that motorcycle rolled over to go upwind, you'll be drifting all over the place. You mm -hmm. know, before you can do something, the wind will blow you around. So as long as you don't encounter something like that, you don't really have to know how countersteering works. But when you do encounter something like that, you really need to know what you're doing. And so it's in the non-normal situations, the emergency situations, if you will, where where it's very important to understand this. And so uh, for those people who just kind of do it, they've ridden motorcycles, they, they either haven't taken training or didn't pay any attention or haven't read books or whatever that, that might have given them some, um, some skill and, and, uh, and knowledge, uh, they're, not, they're not really prepared for the switch to a three-wheeler because they haven't yet really mastered a two-wheeler. So when you, when you decide to get on a three-wheeler, you really need to to learn a different skill set. And it's not that it's a bad skill set or, or it's a skill set that's not fun. Uh, you know, I think that there's a tremendous enjoyment from learning how to master driving a sidecar outfit. Actually, the book Driving a Sidecar Outfit was first written as a book for Ural America back in the days when Bob Jaron was, was one of the uh, principals in Ural America. And he said they had discovered that um, there are a lot of people would go out and buy a Ural sidecar outfit. I don't know whether you remember this, but you could buy a Ural sidecar outfit at Costco. <laughs> and so they would deliver this thing to the guy's home. And then he says, my God, I've never even been on a motorcycle before. So what they discovered is that about 30% or more of their purchasers didn't have any motorcycle experience whatsoever. So uh, Bob asked me if I would write a book for this, which I did. And I generated the book. But being the clever devil that I am, I said, Bob, I want the rights to all of this. He said, yeah, fine, fine. So we had gone out to take some photos, which in those days uh, we shot black and white to, to shoot uh, some sequences of learning to drive a Ural sidecar outfit. And then I was able to use those in the book. So if you look today at driving a sidecar outfit, it's in color in the second edition. But there are still some black and white photos of the, of the old Ural sidecar outfit that we were using. When it comes to other handling characteristics, what's there, I guess I'm going to go, I want to ask you about braking. Is braking a problem? I mean, clearly it's different with a sidecar, but is it a problem? Well, let's back up just a sec and say that there are different three-wheeled motorcycles and sidecar outfits tend to be the most difficult to control because they're not symmetrical. And some people will say, well, that's a disadvantage, you know, and there are lots of people who want life to be symmetrical. So if you have a car, you want a headlight on both front fenders. You know, you, you've got a, uh, 
let's see, what do you guys call it? A Chesterfield. <laughs> you want a doily on both arms, right? Right. You know, it wouldn't do it just to have a doily on one side. You got a house, you got a cottage up there somewhere. You got the front door, you got a window on both sides. It's symmetrical. People seem to like that. So here's the sidecar outfit, and it's not symmetrical. All the motorcycle mass is over on one side, and then there's this other thing, whatever it is, on the other side. And it's clear that the power is on one side. The braking tends to be on that side because of the mass, uh, you know. And and so uh, it, we're talking about either accelerating or braking. What happens is the outfit wants to yaw. That is to say, um, it wants to rotate around its center of mass based on where you're pushing on it. So if you're if you got a sidecar mount on the right, which would be true of North America, uh, where in England they're on the left or Japan. But uh, you got a sidecar on the right, and you accelerate. The outfit wants to to yaw to the right, it wants to rotate to the right, because you're trying to accelerate the sidecar, and it's reluctant to go. Okay, and when you go to brake, um, even if you had a brake on the sidecar outfit, all of the mass is on the left side. So when you brake, the outfit wants to yaw to the left. And this is much more prevalent, of course, if you're going up or down a very steep hill. Uh, but uh, that's one of the one of the purposes for having a sidecar course is so you can get some exposure to yaw and other characteristics in a parking lot so you don't take out a power pole or something. So it's, it's significant then when you're riding it. Well, it it's only significant when you when you first start. It's sort of like kissing girls. You know, it, it's a big, big event until you do it for a while, and then it seems quite normal, you know. Right, so right. With, with sidecar outfits, um, once you learn to master some of the techniques, then they're old hat. And uh, there are very few situations where, because you learn to drive a sidecar outfit, you would not immediately be able to transition back to a bike or to a car. I've, I've had some events, but those are war stories. Jay from DMC was saying about the, the sidecar wheels slightly ahead of the rear wheel for stability reasons. That's why I was asking about the braking. Is there any chance of it wanting to roll up because you're, you've got this extra wheel off to the side and, it, and you're, you're sort of missing a front one if you want to look at it in a symmetrical well, point of view? Sure, but uh, again, this is what you need to learn to control. You need to figure out what it's going to do and then learn what you have to do to be able to keep it under control. So let's imagine that you had a car, okay, and you unbolted the right front wheel and removed it. Well, you would expect that right turns wouldn't be much of a problem, but left turns could be a bit of a problem, wouldn't it? Because sure. because there's nothing to support the whole right front portion of the car, and, and it would tend to drop down onto the ground. So if you were able to move the, the right rear wheel up a, a ways, uh, then it would provide a more even support. So uh, there are some sidecar outfits, notably Harley-Davidson, that don't have any. We call this lead. When the sidecar wheel is ahead of the rear axle of the motorcycle, uh, the distance ahead is called lead because it leads the wheel. So if you have zero lead like a Harley-Davidson, uh, it, it tends to corner very nicely, but it also will drop the nose of the sidecar onto the ground in a left-hander if you push it. Hmm. And, and this, can be, uh, this can be a disturbing issue if you have – uh, a large heavyweight person in the sidecar and you try a uh, you, you get a little drunk and try an emergency left hand turn you can flip the outset right upside down you know so <laughs> the, the, like i said if you work hard enough you can crash anything but uh, but once you learn how to control the rig and you learn what you must do with your body uh, then 
situations become controllable. In fact, you take great pride in being able to to handle the outfit or make it do things that most people are not aware of. Uh, for instance, flying the car. Flying the car is when you lift the sidecar wheel off the ground on purpose and you balance everything on the bike two wheels. This actually is a, is a critical thing. Um, and it amounts to this, that um, because the motorcycle is on one side, it is comparatively easy to fly the sidecar by mistake if you're in a turn to that direction. So if you're making a right turn with a right-hand mounted sidecar, it's comparatively easy to fly the sidecar wheel. And then the outfit does some strange things because it's no longer on three wheels. It's now a two-wheeler again. And so it responds to counter-steering just like a bike. Oh, uh, like a bike with a huge, big saddlebag you know, on one side. Um, and a lot of people don't know what to do. And so instinctively, they do the wrong thing. Their survival reactions are wrong to recover from this. People tend to snap off the gas, step on the brake, and this makes things worse. So part of the, uh, of the concept of driving an outfit is to be able to keep the sidecar wheel down but part of it is to be able to know what it's doing so that you can make it fly or not fly whenever you want. And so my philosophy with this is that if you are not capable of flying the sidecar on purpose, you're not ready to hit public roads. So it's a, it's a really a critical skill that people should learn. Uh, in, the, in the sidecar course, it turns out that, that uh, the exercise was pushed downstream because it was seen as the uh, just the ultimate sidecar thing and some people considered it to be well it's just a stunt well it's not a stunt and uh, and it really could have been put up front a little bit but people just loved taking the course and ending up being able to fly the car and they thought wow this is really great you know so so it's at more or less at the tail end of the course but it's a critical skill and if you again if you don't know how to fly the sidecar you don't know how to bring the sidecar down either. What about two-wheel versus one-wheel drive? A lot is made out of two-wheel drive because the uh, the Nyep and the uh, Ural and there's a Changjiang Chinese copy of some of this. Some of them have two-wheel drive. And the unfortunate situation is that with a two-wheel drive vehicle with a differential, uh, they're comparatively easy to flip. And uh, so early Urals had a, uh, uh, they had the shaft drive back to the, to the final drive unit, which contained a universal and then a shaft drive out to the sidecar wheel. So you could engage this riding down the road and it would act just like an automobile with a differential. Now, do you remember years ago there was some Jeep rollovers? Sure. Yeah. People would, would go zipping around a parking lot, put the thing into aggressive turn, and all of a sudden there they are upside down, you know. And what people didn't realize is that with a two-wheel drive vehicle with differential, when the inside wheel gets light and begins to lose traction, all of the drive torque goes to that wheel to make it spin. And so the drive torque that was formerly making the – the outside wheel slide now goes away and it suddenly catches traction and flip over it goes. And I've had some personal experience with this, but uh, so what, what uh, Nyep did, that's another, uh, well, it's a Ukrainian sidecar outfit used to be made. Uh, they had a, um, a gearbox 
So they had a differential, but then they they drove the sidecar shaft at about twice speed. You remember those old hand grinders, uh, you know, that your grandpa would have in his shop and you'd grab the handle and it had tremendous torque and you'd and you eventually get the thing moving fast. Well, yeah. there's a reluctance to cause a change in speed. And so what this would do is with the Nyep, uh by the time that the, the torque to the sidecar shaft uh, was geared up and then geared down again, it would not change speed instantly. And so this made it relatively safe. As the Ural, however, didn't have that. They had a same speed shaft. Um, what would happen is you'd put it into a, a sharp left-hand turn. The the motorcycle wheel would begin to get light, start to lose traction. And then the torque, which was formerly going to the sidecar wheel, suddenly goes back to the motorcycle wheel and causes it to spin up. And so all of a sudden, poof, you're up in the air. And so in real life, probably is not a good idea to run around with a differential in a vehicle unless you have some sort of, uh, of traction control on it. We do it with cars a lot because it's less likely that you'll roll your car. Um, and um, when you have um, you know, a four-wheel drive vehicle, it's nice to be able to have some sort of traction control to keep the torque from going instantly from one wheel to the other. But there's really no need to have two-wheel drive in a sidecar outfit because you do have – one good drive wheel, and at the same time that I was fooling around with Urals, I had my own outfit, which was a BMW R100 with a Ural sidecar on it. And um, when I was going to go out onto something like the Bonehead Enduro, I would just mount up uh, my knobby wheels. So I had a nice big wide set of spoke wheels with great big giant serious knobs on them, and I'd mount that up. And uh, pretty much I, it would go where it was pointed. It, you know, see a big mud hole coming up fine, just point to it and gas it and shoot mud up into the trees and away you go. Uh, so when you can put your one wheel exactly where you want it, it's a little bit different from when you have two wheels and you're trying to kind of decide, you know, which, you know, uh, where's the traction going. So so a two-wheel drive is uh, sounds like a good idea because cars have two-wheel drive, but there's a lot of cars get stuck. As far as uh, sort of to, to, to wrap things up for someone looking or considering the sidecar, as far as those considerations, are there a list of considerations that you can come up with sort of off the top of your head where you'd say, okay, you need to think about this, this, and this? Well, first of all, um, let's separate out the, the engineering of a sidecar outfit from the driving of a sidecar outfit. So, and, and for this conversation, uh, I'll stick to driving. Mm -hmm. How do you make it do what you want to do? So the number one consideration is don't assume that just because you've had, you know, 100 years of two-wheeled motorcycling that you know anything about sidecar outfits. You, you should consider yourself a novice just like when you first learned how to drive a bike. Uh, and so that's the first concern. The other concern is... Um, there's two ways to learn. One is just go do it. And then if you survive, well, fine. And then if you don't, you die. You know, so uh, that's called trial and error. And um, it's much better if you watch me do it. And if you watch me crash, you can learn something from it. And it's, it is relatively painless for you. So uh, that's called training. And so uh, my advice is if you're interested at all in sidecars, uh, go find the Sidecar Trike Education Program somewhere. It's uh, it's administered by the Evergreen Safety Council in Seattle, 
and go take the course. Uh, they'll uh, they'll provide the training rigs for you. You'll get some experience on at least a sidecar outfit, a small one, uh, and uh, perhaps a, a spider or some uh, trike or three wheeler. And you'll get some exposure before you spend your money. Mm, that's uh, a really good idea, isn't it? Uh, that, that's just like a you know a rental sort of thing. Well, even that's better. That's right. You take the course. You learn how to drive. You know, for I don't know what what it costs these days, one hundred and fifty or two hundred bucks. Yeah. Uh, you could squander a lot of money, you know, building some outfit and finding out that you don't really like that. So uh, I I would advise people to do that, even if you got to go from Canada down to Seattle and you know take the course. Anything else? Well, I think that um, just like when you're learning anything new, uh, you want to do as much uh, experimenting as you can away from traffic for a while. And that's one of the big advantages of a training course. If there's no training course available, I have had a number of Canadians who have bought the uh, driving a sidecar outfit and then uh, taught themselves. You know, using the exercises, if they follow through the exercises that are in the book, it's a pretty good do-it-yourself training course. Uh, I mean, if you really believe each exercise and master each exercise as you go, um, it's pretty good. And then many of them will send me a picture of them flying the sidecar at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, uh, sidecars are, uh, are intriguing. I think that if you're the kind of a person who requires – a doily on both sides of the Chesterfield. You might not like sidecar outfits. You might like trikes better. And trikes have fewer surprises because they are symmetrical. A left turn on a trike is pretty much the same as a right turn. Um, so uh, if you're if you want to get into something, however, that's pretty it's pretty interesting. Uh, there's some difficulty to it. But since when did motorcycles shy away from difficulty? You know so. Um, so yeah, I've, I've found sidecars to be a lot of fun and, uh, indeed dogs love sidecars. Did you know they have doggles? I've seen those. Yeah. There's, there's a guy that we had on the show before, Eric Gregi, and he was the first one I sort of came across with a dog with a goggles. And I'm yeah, just, dog with, they make goggles for dogs and they're called doggles. Yeah. I'm just amazed. You know, but dogs love sidecars. They, they get their own view. The sidecar is more their size, uh, you know, and how can you safely carry it? Uh, how can you reliably carry a dog on a two-wheeler, uh, you know, and be guaranteed that they'll stay put? So uh, oh, I, my suggestion is, uh, you know, not to get too serious about it before you go take the sidecar course and see if you really think that this is something you might want to do. My experience has been that I can't remember a single sidecar course that I taught or observed uh, where people didn't come away at the end with a huge, big grin on their face. Well, I guess we can do the doily test at home, and as long as we pass that, then we'll we'll be all set to go out and, and give a sidecar a try. I love the idea of taking the course ahead of time. I, I think that's great. David, great to have you on. Always a pleasure to talk. Thanks, Jim. That was author and journalist David Huff, and, of course, author of Proficient Motorcycling, a book that if you haven't read it, I strongly recommend you get out there and get it. We're going to take a minute break and we're going to be right back with Brett Tax and our first rider skills segment for 2017 on applicably gravel roads. Stay with us.
It seems that winter is finally over here on the coast of British Columbia, and uh, I've been trying to get out to ride every chance I can get, even if it's just for a few hours. And of course, my favorite rides are dirt roads, rough tracks. I love it. Again, yesterday I was out riding, and I'm standing up on my pegs, as we do when we're riding dirt, and it got me wondering, how could I ever have stood the stock pegs for so long? I'm standing on IMS Rally Pegs, uh, one of the sponsors of the show and a great supporter of the show. And, I'm, and I just can't believe it, the, like the difference over the stock pegs these ones have given me. And it's kind of odd to be doing it this far down the road, too. I mean, I've been riding with these for a little while now, but still, every now and then when I'm standing up on them, I just, I, I get all giddy about it. It's seriously, it's my own experience here. These pegs give me so much more control and better feel over the stock ones. Now, I know there's a lot of pegs in the market, for sure, um, but IMS is well known in the racing industry for quality gear that works. And of course, in racing, you need top-notch stuff. And I think they certainly hit the mark on the pegs, in my opinion. 17.4 cast certified stainless steel pegs, um, heat treated, made in the USA, a full lifetime warranty. As a matter of fact, we had Scott Wright, the owner of IMS uh, products, on here on the show one time, and he said himself, if you fracture the peg, they're going to replace it. Simple as that. IMS has a complete line of adventure motorcycle pegs. They support the show, so drop by their website. Have a look at what they've got, www.imsproducts.com. And, and of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's www.imsproducts.com. You know, if you don't ride gravel roads normally, there's probably going to be a time when you're riding where you're going to be forced to go down a gravel road, whether you're riding a street bike or whether you're riding a bike with knobby tires, because you'll run up to a a construction area that wasn't there the last time you were here and have a huge stretch of fresh gravel, or maybe a detour where they send you off down another road, or maybe you're just looking for something and you end up riding down a gravel road. Well, it shouldn't be a panic for you because all you need is some basic skills to help at least mitigate problems on the road and sort of manage your motorcycle. And kicking things off with our first rider skills segment for this year, for 2017, we have Brett Tax back once again. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to deal with riding gravel roads. Brett, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Great to have you here for this is our first segment for 2017 for rider skills. Yes, it is. And I think today we're going to go right back to one of the most core skills that, that people have to deal with for adventure riding. And especially this time of year. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if you're in North America anyway. Well, yeah, unless you want to play around with mud. But I think we should talk about gravel today. So let's talk about gravel travel. What do you think? I think this is a great idea because it's certainly the time of year everybody's getting on their bikes. If you're in North America, a lot of people have been stuck not riding for the winter. And the first thing you get out and you have to deal with is, well, you mentioned mud, but also gravel. And even in the summertime, we're riding around. I mean, there's all kinds of gravel. But it seems this time of year is when you find all those grades of gravel because they tend to freshly grade roads that haven't been obviously touched all winter long. You get your soft spots in your roads, all those sorts of things. Well, and the other thing is gravel is the most commonly traveled surface that we're all on other than pavement. And this time of year, it may not be consistent. Like you said, there, there's changes, but sometimes they're graveling the road. Sometimes there's mud underneath it. Sometimes there's washouts. And so it can be less predictable this time of year than in the middle of the summer when everything's dry and packed down and, and so forth. And it does seem to be um, a surface that gets a lot of people in trouble. It is. And I think it's very often overlooked by by riders and travelers that 
they, they kind of see gravel going to the place that they're going to ride off road. Because for many, riding off the pavement onto the gravel is just not a big difference. And that gets people in trouble. So should we look at uh, the common mistakes first? Maybe start off with that and, and look at the common mistakes we make when we get into gravel? Well, there's a whole mess of them. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we can take a look at that. And and this kind of ties into the fact, you know, I've been to, as you know, I, I train a lot of rallies and I, I do the training, I do the tours. And so I get to see a lot of riders who have um, other training or no training at all. And I am absolutely um amazed or disgusted or however you want to put it at the number of riders that fall off of well-graded gravel roads and and just looking at going, well, why did this happen? This should never have happened. So looking at why people do that, I think that's a great place to start. So what's the top of the list? What's probably the most glaring one that jumps out? The most glaring to me, the most glaring thing is attitude. People go out with the wrong attitude on these, especially when they get out with their their friends or they go to a rally and they get out on these gravel roads. These are public roads. They're, there's two-way traffic going on these and people live beside these roads. And next thing you know, they're running down these like they're in a race, like they're out at the Baja or they're trying to do the Dakar. And they're just blasting down these way outside of their, their safety limits or skill sets. Yeah, it's a really good point because uh, on top of that, then what you got to consider is the fact that you're not the only one on this gravel road. It's it's kind of interesting how we have that mindset. Sometimes you get on there and you think, oh, it's okay to drift around. But as you mentioned, public roads can be commercial traffic. You never know what's around the corner. And I think it's more dangerous when you're in groups or in, in these rally environments because people sort of get this, this uh, competitive thing going on with their pals or they don't want to look like the guy that can't ride off-road or the guy that's the slow guy. But what they're not paying attention to or not realizing is, yeah, all of you guys can get around that corner and all of you can drift around that corner until there's a bumper of a of a truck or, or a logging truck coming the other way and then things go really bad at that point. So general attitude, I mean, what are you going to do? Just, it's just awareness. Having the right Having the right attitude, slowing it down, keeping yourself in check. And I don't mean slowing down like paddle walking or going slow, but, you know, just keeping in mind, this is a two, two lane road, making sure your, your lane position, you know, so you can see around the corner. So other traffic can see you and you have time to react, paying attention to that surface and being able to do that. And that's where we're, I want to go today talking about, you know, body positioning on the bike. This makes a big difference. Um, on how quickly you can see things and how quickly you can react to things, how we manage our throttle and, and how we stay relaxed on the bars and how we use our, our steering and handlebars to maintain control. When you say body position, what are you talking about? Well, generally we talk about standing and sitting and, and I want to come back to that in a little bit, but I want to actually talk about the body position in relation to the point of traction. So for me, the point of traction is where the rubber meets the road. Right. That's where your tires make contact. And in the off-road situations and, and especially in, in this gravel travel kind of a scenario, I want to have my head, my spine, my my rear end, all of that lined up directly over where the tire is touching the gravel. And what that means is my position is when that bike goes through a corner, it needs to lean. But I'm not going to lean with it like I do on the pavement. I'm going to let the bike lean underneath me and I'm going to keep myself shifted so I'm over both points of contact, the front and the rear tire. Does that refer to pushing the corner as far as steering technique? Well, when I think of pushing the corner, I'm thinking of exiting with throttle, but it's the same idea. I think we're talking about the same thing here where you push the bike underneath you. 
Um, the only thing I would say about that is, is a lot of people think, oh, I pushed the bike underneath you. And the truth is you should be able to relax. There's almost no effort here. And, and I've done this and demonstrated this so many times in training and, and when I'm working with people on the tours with Tour USA, where I'll go through the corner and while the bike is actually leaned underneath me, I'll raise up my hand and point at something or wave at something or, or sometimes even, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've only got two fingers holding on to the, to the bike only because I need at least two fingers to manage the, the throttle. So pushing sounds like so much effort. And the truth is I just let the bike lean and fall underneath me and I just stay shifted to the outside. Same thing we do for low speed maneuvers. So what's the advantages to this? The, the major advantage well, there's actually, I'm going to give you two and we'll just keep it simple. One is if I'm to the outside of the bike, I'm peeking around the corner. So that actually gives me the greatest vantage point as far as whether I'm vertical or leaned inside the bike. By being outside, I can see around the corner a little bit sooner. So if there is traffic or something coming at me, they can see me and I can see them. The other real advantage here is that because we're off-road and traction can change so suddenly, even on hard-graded gravel, I mean, a lot of times we... We can miss the little things. It just happens to get a little softer in the corner or something like that. The bike will start to slide. And if I'm to the outside of the slide, that means the bike is sliding into me. That means I have more time, more space to shift my body to make corrections or to steer the slide. Whereas if I'm down inside the corner, it's sliding away from me. And I really don't have any time to do that. Plus, the bike is going away from me. So we're getting more distance. I just don't have the same control. And does it also have to do with your, your position? Because you're more vertical the, as the rider itself, it's easier to put a foot down quick to stop yourself from going down. Like, say, the, the, you know, when you're going around a corner and the bike starts to slide out and you quickly tap a foot down to stop that slide from going all the way down or slide your foot. Is it part of that too? Because you're more vertical, it's easier to put your foot down. Of course, when you're laying over on your side, you just can't do it. You're just going to go down. Yeah. And for me, dabbing and dabbing is when you do that quick kickoff. Uh, if you plant a foot, that's, that's a bad thing, especially on the adventure bikes. And I'm, I'm not a fan of putting feet down just because it, it, it really does cause, uh, it raises the risk level. I mean, the fact if you drop a foot, and it gets pulled up into your panniers or anything else. And, and the bike's moving so fast that by the time you touch the ground, your foot's behind you. But by being up on top of that bike, you can shift your weight to the outside rather than dropping a foot down. Because we drop to kick the bike up. And that's because our weight's all on the inside. Remember, this, a lot of this has to do with where the balance and the weight is. If you're down inside and the bike is leaned over, all of that weight is not over where the traction is. If you're directly over your traction patch and the bike slides into you, you're still over that weight and it does a little sidestep. It doesn't just slip away. So you, you may not need to do a dab or to have a foot drop at all if you're doing that. And again, at 35, 40, sometimes 50 miles an hour or, or however fast, you know, you can be hundred kilometers an hour sometimes on these gravel roads. Putting a foot down is just not a really good idea. But when, and when we're talking about putting a foot down, we're talking about the sitting position as well. If you're standing, you're not dabbing a foot. And, and there's probably no need to either because when you're sitting and doing that dirt bike style, you know, you get forward on the tank and, you're, and you've got a, a dirt bike riders often put a foot out as they're making the corner just for that exact reason. Certainly, you're not going to do that when you're standing. Yeah, and I think that's one of the places where this foot out thing comes from is in the, the dirt bike world and people see their the legs go out. But what they don't realize, and, and I see this on adventure riders and dual sports, they, they drop their foot down. 
and they go straight down. Well, the bike's moving forward. So by the time their foot touches, it gets pulled out behind them. And if you watch carefully on uh, enduro racers and motocross riders, when they throw a foot out, their leg is directly in front of them. It actually runs up past the cowling. Their foot is up by the front axle. And that's because those bikes with the traction they have and where they're riding can go so low that they can actually have their foot drag out there. But also that foot usually comes out into a berm style corner. And what they're doing is they're dropping to the seat and throwing their foot forward to transfer load to the front tire to increase the traction that's available there. So in most situations on adventure bikes, it's not really a good call and it's not actually applied in the correct context. You know, this is an interesting point when it comes to information like this, because it's easy to look at things like that and go, oh, well, they're pro riders and so they do it. I should be doing the same thing. Same as the information about, well, if you if you start to um, have trouble on the gravel, give it more throttle. And, and a lot of people do that and then find themselves in trouble. And we find the same thing when we talk about standing. And you and I have talked about that before. And I want to talk about that again today. But we see pictures or we see videos or we see movies where the guys are standing up. And so everybody stands up. But if they don't understand exactly why they're standing, what the benefits are, how they need to move the rest of the body around them, it's not just the act of standing. It's what a standing allows you to do that makes the difference. And that goes true with dropping a foot, dabbing, throwing a leg out. You have to understand the dynamics behind it. Otherwise, you could be making things worse and often are. So when it comes to gravel then, are we standing or sitting? Well, you can do both. Um, Sitting has one significant advantage. And this is the only advantage I could think of while we were kind of getting ready to talk about this topic and I've been scribbling notes down. And and that is sitting requires less energy. You know, if you really talk about long distance travel and and when you're traveling down through Argentina, you may have a thousand miles of gravel or, or, you know, 1500 kilometers of, of gravel. And you're, that's a long time to be standing. You're talking days, not hours. And so being able to conserve the energy is very nice. But where the real advantages come in from a performance and control standpoint is the standing. And so standing is generally the default position that we want to go to. So when it comes to gravel, are we sitting or are we standing? Well, you can do both and each has its own advantages. So I'm going to start with sitting. And the, the major advantage or the only real advantage of sitting just has to do with energy, you know, conserving energy. And, and this really comes into play when you're talking about riding, you know, a thousand miles or, or 1400 kilometers of just gravel. You know, and this is down in Argentina and Chile and a lot of these places. It's just that's the roads you're on. And that's a long time to be standing, especially when these are hard packed highway type roads. So that's what sitting has for you. But if you're talking about performance and actually making the bike perform better or to deal with hazards, your default position should be standing. So what does standing do for you? So the first thing I would point out is visibility. And I already mentioned the the idea of staying over the traction patch puts you to the outside of the bike so you can peek through corners and see better. And standing is the same thing. When you stand up, You can see farther down the road, and most importantly, you can see differences where you get traction changes, so you get that deep gravel as opposed to a hard pack gravel. You see that much, much sooner, but also the shading for potholes or things in the road that you may miss when you're sitting, you can see when you're standing. And that's a tremendous, tremendous advantage. And I was riding with uh, Miguel, as you know, I, everybody probably knows at this point, I, I just got back from Africa, and we were riding through Senegal. 
And some of these roads went from paved to unpaved without warning. And generally, this included potholes that kind of looked like mortar shells that had dropped these huge holes down. And every time we came to these sections, I found myself much, much farther ahead of Miguel when I got to the other side. It wasn't because I was riding fast because I want to ride fast, but his default was to sit. And that seems to be far more common than defaulting to a standing position. And my thing, as soon as things get rough, I go from the seat, I'm standing up. And I was able to see the potholes. It's a false sense of security, isn't it? You, you think that sitting down, I don't know, there's something about being in the saddle lower down that you think is going to make you safer or, or um, better able to control the bike. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. And I, it probably just actually boils down to comfort. We sit most of the time. So when things get scary or concern us, we go to our default, which is the sitting. And this is why learning to stand and make that your default becomes so important because you get better visibility, you have better weight control, it's better on the suspension, it's, it gives you more time to recover if you get a slide. And, and I, I was talking about attitude, standing up puts you in the proper state of mind. How do you mean? Well, anytime you get into any kind of sport, you sort of have this aggressive position. You have this you know, feet shoulder width apart. You bend slightly at the hips and slight bend at the knees and you lean forward and your body goes, we're going to do something. Whether it's wrestling, whether it's football, whether it's martial arts, it's always the same. And so when you stand, you automatically, your, your brain kind of triggers that we're going to do something. But also by standing, you make a very deliberate choice to do this, which, which really draws your attention into we're in a traction situation, we're in an environment where I need more attention, where I need to know what's going on. So it really does set you into the proper state of mind so that you're ready for things when they happen. You're more attentive so things don't catch you on surprise or catch you by surprise. And when they do, when you're sitting and you're, you're running along the dirt road and you hit those potholes by surprise, you're reactive rather than being a proactive rider. It's everything is by surprise. Everything catches you. And often it happens so fast, you're not reactive. You're just along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that with people hitting potholes where they just plow in, they bend rims. I mean, there's very seldom a, a situation where you should ever have a bent rim. And a lot of these come from people just in a sitting position, riding fast, not seeing what's coming up. So when would you sit and when would you stand on gravel? I would sit if I'm riding for 1,500 kilometers, <laughs> except for where things get questionable, corners and things like that. Otherwise, I always stand. As soon as they hit gravel, I, I pop up onto the pegs and, and stand up so I can know what's going on. But anytime there's a challenge that may come up, and this could be oncoming traffic, it could be um, the time of season. We talked about getting out there early season like this, where you may have a lot of water sitting under the gravel, or they may have just re-graveled the roads so it's not packed in yet. And so that is, I, I pretty much always, as soon as they hit gravel, I'm up off the seat. What do you change with the way you're riding when you get into gravel? So you've been booting down maybe a hard packed road, dirt road even. What changes or what do you have to change about your riding style? So what I'm doing on the gravel versus the pavement is pavement has a very high traction coefficient compared to even the hard packed gravel that we get onto. So I have to make that transition that when I'm on the street, I'm leaning into the corner instead of out of the corner. I'm, you know, my traction management, my visibility, the things I'm looking for, and you have to hit that switch. So as soon as I hit gravel, um, again, that's one of the reasons I stand up, but that allows that bike to move underneath me. So when I go under, when I go through a corner, I have a better lateral shift left to right. We talked about hitting those potholes. 
And if you do catch one late and you're not able to avoid it, or maybe there's a whole series and you, you're going to have to go through a pothole, by standing up, it allows me to put that flex into my knees so that as the bike goes into the pothole, it drops down without my weight because I'm suspended above the bike. And when it hits the other side of that, I can change throttle so I can get extra lift on the front end. And also I can allow my knees to bend so that as the bike comes up and over that hard edge, it's not carrying all of my body weight with the same amount of impact. So these are things that I change immediately when I, when I go off road. We talked a little bit about misconceptions, you know, where we, we see these things like the dirt riders and everything. And we, we think that we should be riding like that. Too fast is one of those, isn't it? That mindset of always, uh, like when you talk about sand or you talk about deep gravel or anything, everyone always says, get on the throttle. And I mean, we just had somebody on here some time ago who had an accident from doing just that. That's what she was thinking that she'd always been taught was get on the throttle, go faster, go faster. But eventually it's too fast. And this is the, the whole issue of partial truth. And that comes from either seeing something and not knowing the total story or doing something because it used to be true, but technology tires or in the environment doesn't make it true now. And we see that with ABS, you know, people that don't believe in anti-lock braking uh, and they're thinking of 1993 when BMW put it on a, you know, K75 and the technology has moved so quickly and, and even the whole turn your ABS off when you go off road, that's not always true. And that predates even the new enduro modes but we have these partial truths well they stand up so i stand up well they put a leg out so i put a leg out but you've really got to know why you're doing what you're doing i mean that's as you know that's what i do for a living i'm i'm a trainer i my job is to teach people why are you standing up and how do you change that and when would you change that position so that you are adapting to the environment that you're in that's why people pay professionals because that's our job is to do the research and to know that. So when it comes to going too fast, uh, we're talking about deep gravel. What is the technique then? Do, do you get on the throttle? Do you try and uh, get that front wheel to, to ride up on top of the gravel by increasing your speed? Well, and what you just mentioned is the, the element that people are missing. It has to do with that front wheel. The idea is to get that front wheel up on top of the sand, the gravel, whatever it is that you're going through. But going fast only does that a little bit. And at some point you run out of throttle and you may be going really fast and then bad things can happen. So by standing, it allows you to make more dramatic weight shifts. And the other ways to get the wheel up on top of that is by shifting more weight to the back of the bike. Well, you can't repack the bike while you're riding, but you can, if you're standing, shift farther back and walk in with the, the lower legs into the seat. So you're not holding on with the handlebars and allow that weight shift to help pick up the bike. Um, you can also use power and adding throttle does that, but you don't have to have just throttle to do that. If you're going at a lower speed, you can actually buffer that power with the clutch. So as you add throttle, you can, you can just feed out enough power to keep that wheel up on top. What you don't want to be doing is closing the throttle because then you get a weight shift. It loads the front end. It's more, more likely to dig in and wash out or to apply the brakes, more specifically the front brake. And you know I'm a huge front brake advocate. I, I know what the capability is. But this is one of those situations where trailing the rear brake to actually sink the back of the bike into the gravel and to keep the front end high is, is technique related. We're not using the brake to stop. We're using the brake to change the attitude of the bike. 
All right, because as soon as you touch the front brake, you, you do a weight shift, a traction change on the front wheel, it starts to dive, and that's where all the trouble begins. Exactly. And the same thing happens when people sit. They want to throw their feet down and sit. Well, they lose that lateral control of the bike. They make it heavier so it's going to waggle left and right more often. And when you sit, you're center of the bike. If you're standing, you can be towards the back seat. And so it's a much more significant. Speed does make a difference. There is a, a benefit to that. But speed is such a arbitrary uh, word or arbitrary statement. And, and speed for one person is seven miles an hour speed for another person is 50 miles an hour speed for another person is all the throttle until it runs out. And what I'm saying is there is a balance point where you gain additional stability, right? And trail take into account and you have that where the, the bike will continue to push through and ride itself. But there is a window there and it has to do with the environment you're in, your comfort and skill set, and, and what you need to accomplish at the time. When we're talking about making standing a default, and you'd mentioned sort of alluded to that a little bit before, how do you do that? How do you make standing your default when most people, I think everybody probably when you start out, their automatic thing to do is to sit down. How do you overcome it? You have to stand. It's it's all about time and habit generation. And so certainly you can go right off road and stand. And I encourage people to come to, to the school, you know, PSSOR and rent a, a small school bike so they can get comfortable standing um, to come to the adventure camps where we can do it in a controlled environment to do the, the BDR tours where we do the training. And we'll constantly remind people we need to get up on the pegs, even when it's not technically necessary because of the environment, because the idea is to be ready when the environment changes. But you can also do this. And for your listeners, I, I have an activity that I recommend and I do during many of our training, which is to practice standing when you're not in the gravel. So one of the ways we can develop this default of standing is to to do this on pavement. It's an activity I do for the people that do the training with me. And what I have you do is when we're on paved surfaces, especially the ones that are really switchback, turny, you know, back and forth, whether it's a, a back road switchback or whether it's a, a highway where we're at is Highway 12, Highway 410. These are really nice mountain passes that just go back and forth. But I have the riders stand up in those environments. And what they do is they practice off-road riding techniques. So they stand up and they allow the bike to lean underneath them as they're going through these corners. And again, this is anywhere from 35, 50, you know, 35 miles an hour to 50 kilometers an hour, uh, an hour to, um, to highway speeds of, of 65 and hundred kilometers an hour. And it gets people comfortable standing with the wind, standing with more speed, standing when they don't have to worry about the traction falling out from underneath them. This way, when they go to the gravel and they get the added challenges or the added concerns of the gravel, they're already comfortable with the standing position. So we have them stand up and lean the bike underneath them. So they're staying over that traction patch. You and I talked about earlier of the front and rear tire. So their head is aligned. Their body is aligned with where the tires are touching the pavement in this case. And you can do this both for standing, but you can also practice the same technique for sitting because just because we sit doesn't mean that's a riding technique for off-road. You still have to be active in a sitting position. There is a proper way to sit in gravel and ride, and there's a proper way to stand. And so it's not just the, the standard sit, it's where you are on the bike as well. Okay, well, now that you said that, I'm curious, what give us the proper way to stand and the proper way to sit for gravel then. Okay, so 
for the for the standing position, we want to be, and I mentioned that sort of a sport position, this aggressive stance. But you want to be standing out with the knees not locked but near locked. You you want your hips and knees aligned with the the foot pegs below you. You want your elbows slightly out and. Uh, not completely locked out. And, and again, you hear people talk about this elbows up or, or like, you know, like a chicken wing or whatever it is that they, they refer to. And what we're actually trying to do is draw a straight line through our forearm and our wrist. So if you look down and your wrist is bent, then you need to change something. You need to move your body, your shoulders, your elbows, something. So you always keep this wrist, forearm, and, and uh, forearm and wrist relation straight. This also means when you're holding on the handlebars, your hands are not going to be square to the bars. They're going to end up rotating on the grip, very similar to when you reach out and grab a, a doorknob and open a doorknob, or if you hold on to a racket. You know that same sort of hand position is the way you're going to be on the controls. Well, you can and keep your, your wrist and your hands straight. If you're if you're riding a chopper, you could reach up and have your wrist and uh, and arms aligned straight. You got to have your elbows up, don't you? Y- you do, and that's what many many street riders, the average street rider, is going to do. Is when they they have a tendency to always want to drop their elbows to their side because that's a good technique for the road, but it's a very poor technique for off road. The handlebars move around. There's more lateral shift left and right, and so you want to be above that. So when we're standing, we're up. We have those wrist and forearms straight. We're forward on the bike. That's our, our default or our start position. So we're up near the steering head. And it should be relaxed and comfortable, but it should be forward. Uh, because in the in the off-road world, the first tire we want to have traction on is the front tire. And, and certainly we shift forward and back and side to side as things change. But our default would be up and over that steering head. So that's where we start with the standing. For sitting – Obviously, you're going to be farther behind. You you can't make weight shifts forward and, and backwards as dramatic. But in the seat, you should be moved forward in that seat as far as you can. That's your default. So you're pressed all the way up against that tank. And, and again, you'll see on dirt bikes, they're the extreme. The seat runs all the way up to the gas cap. And so that's where you want to be to get maximum traction from a starting position. And then same thing, wrist and forearm straight, elbows are high, and allow that bike to move down underneath you. And again, that movement forward on the bike and that bend in the elbows allow that bike to move down underneath you and keep you above that traction patch. So whether you're standing or sitting, the the objective is the same. Okay, standing or sitting, um, I'm thinking of two scenarios. One I'm thinking of when people get going too fast. Another one is when they're going into corners and you find you don't have the traction or maybe even you've underestimated the corner, you know, the tightness of the corner or traffic coming the other way. What what sort of tips would you give for that? We're always going to end up trying to accomplish the same thing. We want to stay over the point of traction. So as the bike slides, we can slide with it. We want to steer the direction that we want to we want the bike to end up going. And I don't mean turning left because it's going left, but if the bike starts to slide right, what you'll notice is that where you want to go is usually kind of in front of you. It starts to pivot around and you want to keep the wheel pointed in the direction that you want to end up going. You, you off, When you think of this in a car, usually in the snow, when the car starts to slide sideways, you steer into the slide. If you break that down, you're almost always steering the direction you actually want the car to go. And the same is true with a motorcycle. And you want to be looking in that direction. That's really key, isn't it, for that? Not just in that direction, but we want to be looking for the horizon. So you want to be looking out far enough that you get a flat line on the horizon. And if you're looking down into the gravel and it's sort of an open, flat surface and there's no horizon, it's very 
very delayed in recognizing when you've gone too far or when the bike is leaning or when you're no longer in line with the, the traction and you're now inside of the the point of contact and then the bike's far more likely to slide out from underneath you. Of course, a lot of riders aren't going down because they lose control. They're going, they're going down because they panic and they grab the brake or they tense up on the handlebars and they actually cause the, the crash when it could have been avoided. I mean, there's so much about this with having the proper attitude and just recognizing things and learning to be relaxed. It is so important to be able to stay relaxed and let the bike do what it's supposed to do. What about braking while being leaned over in a corner? And we're talking gravel here, um, loose surface stuff. Um, that's probably one of the most common things that people run into. You come into the corner too fast for whatever reason. How are you getting slowed down? We'll just keep it simple. If you're going to brake in the corner, do it vertically. So if you're going in the corner and you think you're going too fast or you are going too fast, if you can pull the bike to vertical, do some hard braking straight up in line. That way, if you get any kind of a skid or slide, because most ABS is not designed for for leaned over, most ABS is designed for vertical braking. Scrub off a few kilometers an hour, a few miles per hour, and then you can put the bike back into the corner and finish the corner. But the best thing to do here is obviously brake before the corner, enter those corners slowly. And we, we talked about having that attitude. It's not a race out there, and especially as a traveler, if you're loaded up with gear and you're a long ways from help. And and even in the, the Cascade Mountains here on the west coast of, uh, of the U.S. and Canada, you can be a long time before you get help. And I, I've seen riders on pavement that have been injured where it was five hours before they were inside a, a hospital. And that's not being up on some remote gravel road somewhere. But anytime you get up into the mountains, you're going to delay those responses to get help. It's it's amazing how long it can take to get help to you. Can you just talk for a second about front brake applications? So you're into the corner, you're in gravel. Talk about using the front brake. Okay, here's one that I'm sure somebody's going to absolutely freak out about. I like using the front brake when when I'm making speed corrections in the corner. And I and of course I just said if you if you've messed up and you're going too fast, bring the bike to vertical, brake hard, and then go back into the corner. But when I ride in the dirt, and I'm talking like dirt bike, so again we're going to take this to an extreme. When I slide the bike sideways in the corner, I use the rear brake to pivot the bike, to deliberately get it to slide. And then of course you're steering into that slide, but I'm using the front brake with just that little bit of graze on that little bit of drag to actually reduce my speed. And then once I get to the point where I need to come out of it, I'm completely off the brakes and I throttle to pull out of the corner. Now on my adventure bike, obviously I'm not I'm not going to go in and lock up the back end and slide it in sideways and break in the front. But I can do very similar things, whereas I, I'm coming in, I can I can trail or drag the front brake just a little bit to make speed corrections early in the corner until I get going the other direction. So that's that's kind of my take on, on front brakes. For most people, try to avoid using either brake once you're in the corner leaned over. But as you develop these more advanced skill sets and you learn how they interact with the bike, then certainly you can start using front and rear brake in corners. Uh, but again, I, I definitely recommend having some training and knowing what you're doing. Um, that's, that's just kind of my take on it. And as far as traction goes, if you go into a corner and you're using 90% of your traction to make the corner and then you get on the brakes, that takes away from that 90% that you were using to make the corner, doesn't it? It, it does. And off-road, it's much harder to calculate this when we're talking about, and, and you know, I do on-road training as well. And when I you talk say about off-road, the, you're talking gravel. 
I'm talking anything without pavement. Okay. <laughs> if you are not on pavement, you're you're off road. And I do on road uh, training with adventure riders and street riders, and and I'll take them out to a racetrack and do things. We've done on road stuff, but in there I can talk about these load transfers using trail braking and things like this to actually increase traction on the front because of these load transfers. And and it's a great concept, but as soon as you go off-road, as soon as you're in the gravel or any unpaved surface, the predictability of these load transfers goes away. Because – and you and I had chatted on the side, and, and I'm hoping in the future we'll get to, to do some stuff talking about street riding because we do so much of it as adventure riders and, and even dual sporters. But talking about these, these pounds per square inch and the way this works and why – uh, knobbies work so well on the pavement, you know, better than most people give them credit for. And I think that's when we're going to go into that. But off-road, it, it's just so – it can be so quick to change and so unpredictable. It's just better to have a plan before you get into that corner and you have the car coming the other way and then you're trying to recover from it. And it goes back to what you said at the very start, which I think is is so important, is that mindset, isn't it? You know, that we are on public roads. You know, the, these roads are graded for a reason. It's not a closed track. You got to ride like that and sort of not let the little kid get out in you. And it can be very hard to do. I know when I do uh, the rallies, if I go out with a group or, or go to lead a group or follow with a group, I almost always grab the more novice riders, the older riders. Um, I love going out with the ladies groups and helping them out because the attitude is so much better. Those those particular groups of riders very seldom have anything to prove. And they're very quick to go, yep, this is out of my league. And I like that because that keeps me safe. And if I go with the groups, often the better riders – they're the ones that seem to get caught up in this competitive riding where they start riding faster and doing things they wouldn't be doing if they were by themselves. And so, yeah, having that attitude and maintaining that individuality is really important for safety. What do we have for uh, a drill for the listener? So I think I'd love to recommend that on-road drill. Uh, I, I think uh, I'd like to see your riders go out and just get way more comfortable with standing. And so what I'm recommending is go find yourself a very, very twisty road, you know, somewhere in the 50 kilometers per hour, 30 mile, 35 mile an hour uh, posted range. Um, sometimes these these back mountain roads or, or national parks are a great place to go. And stand up. Ride those paved roads standing. Let the bike lean underneath you and just get to the point where sitting down – feels awkward. When you get to the end of the ride and you sit down, you go, well, this feels weird. And that's when you know that you're getting the right point. And that's, again, that's why when I do this training, the the tours with Tour USA and the training stuff with PSSOR, the adventure camps, we stand the entire time. It, it, we're about two exercises into the day and we never sit on the bikes again. Um, and there's ways to do this, even if you're older, if you're weaker, if uh, if you have you know, limitations, there's, there's a lot of techniques to help you with the standing process. But for the drill, Find yourself a twisty paved road and stand up and ride it while you're standing and notice the way it changes your vision and pay attention to how the bike moves underneath you. Make sure that you keep those arms bent, that you let that bike move left and right um, significantly and that you're staying over that traction patch. This is a great place to develop that muscle memory and that confidence. Okay, so wrapping things up, just a quick overview of the basic point. Okay, whether you're sitting or standing, here's what you need to do. Make sure you stay forward on the bike, stay loose on the grips, 
keep your eyes on the horizon, and most importantly, above all else, stay focused, ride within the limits of your skill set, and even more important than that, within the limits of the environment you're riding in. Well, Brett, great information for us, especially, like I say, kicking off the spring, but really any time of year for riding gravel. And, um, well, we'll talk next time. It's a lot of fun. Can't wait. And that was Brett Tax, professional motorcycle instructor from PSSOR. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll fill your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, there's some things you can do if you want to help out the show. One of them would be share the show around. You know, let your friends hear about it, put it on forums, share it on Facebook, do all those sorts of things. Speaking of Facebook, you could drop by Facebook and like our Facebook page. And of course, if you're shopping for something, check out our advertisers. And of course, as you know, by now, probably our show is built on a model of advertising and donations to make it work. So if you want to drop by our website and click on the donate button, we would certainly appreciate it. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. $50 or more will get you a mention on Raw. There's a bunch of different things you can choose from there. We'd really appreciate it. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Download all our episodes for free. You can also download our Raw show, which is a separate show. Click on the Raw button. It'll take you to the Raw show. And we've got the latest one out, I think, just last week. That's about it. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. Hi, I'm Carl Parker from ADV Moto Magazine, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 